Scratching the Surface. I'm Jared Fuller, and this is the podcast about this thing called graphic design criticism. This is an episode that I've been looking forward to since I started the podcast almost three years ago now. Rick Pointer is on the show. I do not think Rick needs an introduction. He is a prolific writer, critic, and editor on graphic design, photography, typography, and visual culture in general. His career began at Blueprint Magazine, where he then went on to co-found and serve as the first editor of iMagazine. He also co-founded Design Observer with Michael Beirut, Jessica Helfand, and Bill Drentel, and has written for print and continues to write a column for i today. When I think of design criticism, I think of Rick Pointer, and since he doesn't come from a design background, I was really curious where his interest began and how he got into all of this. So this conversation begins there, begins in the early 90s with the story of how I came together, but quickly moves into how design criticism has evolved and how it's changed and and how he thinks about it today. We talk about the great conversation that he had with Michael Rock in 1995, where they try to define and articulate what design criticism is and can be. And we talk about what he's interested in now that he's not writing about design as much. And we also talk about the writers and publications that are really exciting him today. This conversation was such a joy for me. I was honored to have Rick on the show and really enjoyed uh what he had to say and his optimism and excitement towards the next generation of design writers. I left this conversation sharing his optimism, and I hope that you do too. If you are a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for just $5 a month or $50 a year. Members get an exclusive monthly newsletter that features behind-the-scenes content, links, and articles from former guests about design and writing and criticism and and all the stuff that we talk about on the show. Scratching the Surface is fully supported through these memberships, so if you like the show and want to help with its ongoing production, uh, I hope that you consider joining. Thank you, as always, for listening, and here it is. This is me talking with the great Rick Pointer. bunch of of your work to prepare for this and I was trying to think about how I wanted to frame this conversation and and things we could talk about that might be a little bit different and I kind of want to start by going back in time to 1990 almost 20 years ago kind of around the time that you were uh, starting iMagazine because I think there's something interesting in that era the kind of late 80s early 90s where you were writing about all sorts of design uh, and and your interests were varied. And then right around the time that you were starting I, you really zeroed in on graphic design. And I have two questions around that. I'm, I'm curious what it was about graphic design that kind of pulled all your focus. Was that an intentional focus? And did you see the type of design writing that was coming. Because over the next couple years after that, there really was a, a, a flourishing of design writing. Were you kind of aware of that? Where, what was your thinking in that era as you were really starting to focus on graphic design as a subject to write about? It was actually a, quite a slow build-up to mm. that 1990 moment where we launched I and I became very committed to graphic design. Um, 
I always have to be careful here because to to explain the origins of this could be almost too much, too detailed. Okay, go Basically, for it. Basically, I was I I was a very visual teenager. I nearly um, did fine art as a degree subject, and I certainly mm. did art all the way through high school. But I was torn between that and English and studying English. And so Mm -hmm. that was my commitment to writing on the one hand, first as a reader, but I also wanted to write in the longer term, and then to the visual arts. As a teenager uh, back in the 70s, I'd never heard of graphic design. I didn't know much about it. There was a printing press in the art room, and I never even took very much interest in that because I was so fine art focused. So it was only later that I discovered design, but still, I discovered design uh, quite a while before it even occurred to me to write about it. Um, This was the era in the early 80s when the style magazines such as The Face here in London were being published. Um, I was a music fan, like so many people in uh, design are, uh, and so I loved album cover graphics. And uh, uh, on the one hand, then, I had a grounding in the history of art, and I had a Uh, By studying visual um, history of art at university, I had a training in visual analysis. And then at the same time, I was um, becoming more and more aware of design in popular culture or as popular culture through the magazines and album covers I talked about. So for a long time before I started writing about um, graphic design, let alone focusing on it, I was actually a highly informed observer and consumer of it. Right. In fact, I, in 1983, um, uh, well, I guess I was yeah in my mid-twenties, as a birthday present, I got a copy of Meg's History of Graphic Design, mm. which had just been published. So yeah. you know, I think that probably is quite unusual for a non-designer, an ordinary person, as it were, <laughs> to get interested in the subject and acquire a book like that, which, as we know, it became quite foundational in the course of the yeah. into the 90s uh, for the historical study of graphic design. Um, and there, there it was. I, I, you know, I, had, I had that as my reading. I, I started to buy other graphic design books at that stage. I bought one about total design. Oh, yeah. Um, founded by Wim Crowell and others in Amsterdam. Um, that's again around 83, 84. And on trips to Amsterdam, which I started to visit around then, uh, I became just more aware of posters, um, interesting books in bookshops. So this was bubbling under for an awfully long time. I became a journalist in 84. I worked on a couple of computer magazines. And then in 86, with all this preparation I'm talking about, uh, the point came where I, I, I felt I could present myself to a design magazine as a possible writer. Mm-hmm. You know, although, in a, in a way, I had no track record and there was no reason why they would take me on. Uh, I just knew that I could do this. Um, I got a job on a thing called Designers Journal in 1986. And then two years later, I was approached by the editor of Blueprint magazine in London, Dan mm-hmm. Sujic, who is now director of the Design Museum. And he said to me, um, uh, would you like to come for lunch? And, and at that lunch, he asked me if I'd like a job as deputy editor <laughs> on Blueprint. And this was just fantastic. So yeah. almost without... <laughs> Yeah, trying too hard, I landed on the key um, design publication in London at that time, a very exciting place to be um, writing about uh, the writing on the magazine was about architecture, interior design, furniture, industrial design. 
and a little bit of graphic design. So mm -hmm. as you rightly said just now, at the start, I was writing across all those subjects and frantically kind of learning my stuff. And, <laughs> yeah. and every so often, because I had this prior interest in graphic design, um, something would come up, like uh, Neville Brody would have an exhibition mm -hmm. at the V&A, and I was the natural person then to write something about that. So I, I began to do that while still writing about the other subjects. I should stress, really, because it, it, it's something I think people probably don't always realise. They just think I'm a graphic design nut or something. But my interests were always broad. They've remained broad throughout my entire working career. You know, yeah. I spend as much time looking at... Um, uh, art and photography as I do at graphic design. I may not write about art, but it's there in the background. It's, you know, that's my idea of fun. Go out to an art gallery and look at an exhibition. So right. I think about what's happening and I think it informs my design understanding. So back back in going back to Blueprint, there was this chance to do more and more writing about graphic design, which I seized. Um, as a journalist, I should stress, I didn't see myself as a critic. I was doing journalism. I was going out, I was meeting people, mm. interviewing, reporting on what was happening, you know, the, the trends and the developments and the key people of the moment, exactly mm -hmm. what uh, journalism concerns itself with. And then um, after we'd done that, I'd been there for a year, year or two, the possibility of Word Search, the publisher, launching a new design magazine, a second design magazine came up. They were feeling bullish and confident because Blueprint had been such a success. Uh, and at that point, I, uh, I, in tandem with Simon Esterson, who now is co-owner of I, but back then right. was um, found, kind of founding designer of Blueprint, together um, at, over coffee one day, we discovered we had the same fantasy, which was to launch a new graphic design magazine. I couldn't say now who said it first, but we both had the same thought. We began immediately to work on the proposal. This was then pitched to the directors uh, of Word Search, who went for it incredibly, and um, there were some twists and turns, but it meant uh, by early 90, they were committed to launching I. Uh, they installed me as editor, and they gave me an extremely free hand. So at that point, you know, to bring this closer up to date, uh, at that point, I had every reason to focus much more um, consistently on graphic design as subject matter. I wanted to produce a magazine. It was a quarterly, as you know. It was very, it was review-like in its feeling. So it, it needed it needed to be seriously um, well thought out, professional, and convincing for um, progressive design readership. It also needed to have international appeal. So mm -hmm. you know, again, I'd been working on graphic design, reading books, learning about it, meeting people. But at that point, I really needed to put all my eggs in that basket, really focus on the subject. And that's what I did, basically, for those seven years that I was editing I. Um, I, I pretty relentlessly and exclusively did focus on graphic design. Yeah, I, I mean, you. I have like five questions based on, <laughs> based on on that story that you just yeah, I'll told. I'll try and be briefer. But, uh, but no, know, no, no. I love it. It really, it really it happened as you heard. It actually happened over a period of about twelve years. 
Yeah, and I want to I want to go back to the fact that you got a copy of Meg's design history book and did you say that was a gift that was given to you? Did you see that? I, I, I'm, I'm kind of curious, again, asked, why this even was in your life. Sorry, I asked for it as a birthday present. Okay, okay. But as I recall it now, I didn't I didn't go to a shop and buy it, so it was given to me as a gift, but at my, at my request, I said I'd like to have it. I, I guess I heard about it because at that stage in the early 80s, uh, and I haven't said this, I was also looking at uh, buying, reading design magazines, so mm-hmm. you know, I, I knew about Design, which was the Design Council magazine. Um, Creative Review had launched in oh, right. 1980, so I knew about that. So I just had sources of information on the subject. And I was pursuing that, as, as I was saying, just because um, I loved visual, visual things and I discovered design as a source of visual interest. Mm-hmm. And design was, at that even at that point in the early 80s, with the arrival of people like Brody, Peter Saville in Britain, right, Malcolm right. Garrett, the people who'd come from music graphics, there was a feeling that this was an exciting and fast developing area. And once I'd, I'd latched on to graphic design and followed it through the 80s, writing about it on Blueprint, going abroad, meeting designers, I was absolutely convinced by the end of the 80s that graphic design was indeed an exciting area in which things were developing very fast, seemed mm-hmm. likely to continue to develop because of the new technology and the changes happening there, and where I felt that there was a need for uh, a standard of discussion, let's put it like that, as, as well ultimately as criticism, but a standard mm-hmm. of commentary and discussion which was a bit higher than what we had already in Britain. And as I've said many times, what inspired me to think we could aim a bit higher and achieve achieve a bit more was looking across the Atlantic to American publications. I was reading print magazine from mm. the late eighties. Um, I was uh, an emigre fan and regular buyer and loved what they were doing. This mm-hmm. is even before nineteen ninety. Uh, around that time, I guess end of the eighties, I would have seen the AIGA journal, which Steve Heller used to edit. So right. these American examples were very inspiring to me. And I felt we that that's the level we want to reach. That's the discussion we want to be part of ourselves. And you know, I want to come back to something you said earlier about how when you were writing for, for Blueprint, you saw yourself as a journalist and not necessarily as a critic yet. And I've heard you talk about before that you saw I, and I think really all of your work, uh, not just the work that you did at I, you referred to as uh, critical journalism. And I'm I'm wondering if you could talk more about that and even about the differences that you saw then kind of early in your career about being a journalist versus being a critic and how you maybe kind of move between both of those. Well, the, the journalist, um, the primary task of the journalist is reporting. Um, it's your job to go out there and find the news. And you do mm-hmm. that uh, primarily by meeting people, talking to people, interviewing people. It's a very mobile job. In fact, it's a great job to have. Being a design journalist really was uh, an enormous pleasure because mainly when I was on Blueprint, I would just I wouldn't be at my desk. I'd be out there somewhere, um, looking at something new, meeting some someone new, hearing about some new right. ideas, and. 
Um, the more you do that as a journalist, the more effective you'll be in your role. It is your role to do that. Mm-hmm. So I, I was doing a lot of writing um, for Blueprint and uh, absolutely trying to develop as a writer. Uh, that's partly to do with knowledge, but it's also to do with writing ability, writing style, um, right, producing yeah. sparkling um, copy, uh, <laughs> as, as any, any any journalist aims to do. But it's still quite a it's quite a big thing. It's quite presumptuous in a way to feel that you know so much about this a subject that you are now in a position to offer critical interpretation of that subject. So I was happy uh, for it was I guess it was six years but between becoming a journalist and then starting I to serve that kind of uh, it was an apprenticeship really yeah even though I was thrown in um, uh, right from the start and allowed to write for blueprint pretty much anything I wanted uh, I was all too aware of the standard of the writing by reading other writers on the publication and just also although we we haven't talked about it reading writers in other areas so I was a mm, music yeah. press reader a film criticism reader there were lots of external benchmarks that you could bring into design writing uh, it would as I said, it would be very presumptuous right from the start to say, oh, yes, I'm now a design critic before you've really written anything, before you right. actually know very much at all. Um, but by by 1990, I certainly felt sufficiently sure of the subject and my grasp of it to to <laughs> set myself up as, as an editor, although right. I always viewed it as a learning experience. I was learning by editing. Um, if I wanted to find out about something, I could actually ask another writer to go out there and research it. And then in the course of putting that their feature together for Blueprint, um, sorry, uh, Blueprint first, but then I <laughs> right, doing right. the visual research sometimes, making additional contacts, doing some reading, I would be learning about the subject too. So my um, my confidence, but also my desire to write critically increased rapidly in that period from 1990 onwards. And to come back to your point about critical journalism, which was something that I discussed in that dialogue with Michael Rock, Mm -hmm. which was published in I in 95. What what is this thing called graphic design criticism? Well, there I broached this idea of critical journalism. And it was really just an attempt to give a name or a label to what I felt was valuable about a certain kind of higher level journalism. And at, at that time, I pointed to the the Sunday papers in Britain, mm-hmm. things like The Observer, which would have a review section, um, which had very smart, critical writing about books, exhibitions, films, and so on. Um, but it, even if that was sometimes written by people who come from uh, universities who were academics who were real specialists in their subject it was always written in a way that made it very uh, engaging accessible and interesting to the educated general reader so mm-hmm. you might not have studied history but you could read a long review of a book about history and key points would be made by the writer uh, about the the book itself but often a more general essayistic commentary um, and you would really learn something and you would also get uh, signposts from that kind of writing as to where you could go next if you wanted to educate yourself in that field history or 
um, psychology or what you know literature, whatever the subject of the review happened to be, there'd often be pointers to other other places you could go. So that always struck me as a as a reader myself as a fantastic service right. for other for other readers for my for me as a reader, but if you were an editor, a service that you were providing for readers generally. You know, you were you were helping the process of self education. Um, you can find out, and I certainly could in the past. I think it's still the case. You can find out an enormous amount about the world from smart, um, as I called it, <laughs> critical journalism. And now, the final thing to add about that is the, to differentiate it from straight journalism is classically, if you're writing a news story or something that's more report-based, while you may do that in a smart and sceptical and inquiring way, it's not your job to offer personal opinions and interpretations. That's not what you're doing in that kind of writing. However, there was this sort of hybrid kind of writing, which was part way or somewhere between um, journalism and straight-on criticism, and you, you'd find this writing, as I said, in the Sunday papers, mm-hmm. where it was possible for the writer um, to introduce ideas of their own, um, to express a personal point of view, a worldview even, um, to add another dimension to the writing and to respond to the subject matter, the journalistic subject matter, in a critical way. So it seemed to me, again, that that was a really great way of involving readers in the critical process and that if we could do that within design writing, we might be able to move the writing on uh, to this other level that I'm talking about, you know, a, a higher, uh, slightly more um, critical level. I like that you brought up the the Michael Rock conversation because I I've, I've read that conversation many times. I've assigned that to students when I'm teaching design writing and criticism, and I, I reread it to prepare for this conversation. And then I reread the 2011 kind of follow-up conversation that you did for Michael's book, uh, Multiple Signatures. And two things struck me about both of those conversations when I reread them this week. One is I was kind of interested in how a lot of the questions that you were asking in 95, you were asking again in 2011. And then I think they're similar to the questions that I'm asking on this podcast in 2017, 18, 19. Uh, And then the other thing that interested me is how at the end of the 95 conversation, there was a certain optimism about where this was all going that was not there in 2011. There was a little bit more cynicism, a little bit more of what happened? Why didn't this go the way we thought it was going to go? Where are you now on those subjects now in 2019 uh, between that kind of optimism and cynicism or, or how have your thoughts kind of evolved since then? That is that is a good question, and I accept your um, description, your the distinction you're drawing between those two conversations, because the '95 one happened in the very throes mm-hmm. of this um, explosion of energy in design itself, but also in in writing about design. Uh, that suddenly there seemed to be quite a lot of writers around, many of whom were coming from America and. Those were people who were used in in I, like Michael Rock, for instance, um, who had this ambition to make design writing better. Mm -hmm. And the publications existed 
the forums existed in which we could do that. And it was possible to feel even at times one could engage in a kind of dialogue, uh, in the case of iMagazine, a transatlantic dialogue with people, mm -hmm. um, colleagues of Rudy Vandalands on Emigre and Rudy himself. Uh, so this this was very stimulating and exciting, and I think a lot of people got caught up in it. When I say yeah. a lot, I mean maybe <laughs> relative to now, but you know, not yeah. in larger terms. I'm not trying to suggest this was some huge glo global phenomenon, but certainly right. it built it built up a kind of um, an, a pressure. Uh, a feeling that there was something at stake, something worth uh, talking about, arguing about even. By 2011, it, it's not, and we're not just talking here about design, a lot had happened in the world. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, yeah, politically, yeah. Uh, e economically, new challenges, uh, <laughs> times, feeling we were on the edge of catastrophe. Right. So that, that was in the background and maybe determine some of the mood of that second conversation. But also, we had to acknowledge that after 2000, the dialogue that, that had definitely been happening in the 90s didn't con continue in quite the same way or at quite the same pace, with, with one um, very important proviso. If what I say here is there is true of print publications... Um, you know, the, the temperature cooled a bit mm -hmm. after 2000. Of course, what we had instead was the blogosphere right. and the rise of the design blog um, in the uh, uh, early years of the new century, starting notably with Speak Up. Yeah. No longer exists, of course, but right. a real inspiration for the launch a year later in 2003 uh, for Design Observer. Uh, some of my colleagues would query that, but that's certainly the way... <laughs> I saw it and I remembered it. And yeah. I, I think that was there, this feeling in our little group, the four of us, um, Bill, uh, Michael, um, Jessica and myself, um, that that this this the new kids on the block had created this extraordinarily vibrant site where a huge amount of discussion was going on. And there was a slight feeling that uh, the, uh, this older generation we belonged to, which was still um, very much wedded to print culture and the idea of publishing in magazines, that we hadn't as yet, until Design Observer, seized the opportunity to create something similar. Mm -hmm. uh, and luckily, we did that early enough in 2003 to really kind of uh, make an impression, a quick impression, uh, to cap on, to find readers, uh, and to build up a sense of energy. And so, so for a while, that, that was happening too. But to come back to the, the conversation with Rock, in 2011, um, there was a feeling, perhaps even in the blogosphere, things had slowed down. We talk endlessly. In fact, we talked about it at Tate Modern in the panel discussion uh, about why that happened. Um, social media must be part of it. I mean, mm -hmm. I, you know, I can't empirically demonstrate that, but it just... It feels like uh, social media provided other outlets for some of the people who before then had been excited to comment at the end of blog posts and help to generate that right, discussion. Right. Now, with the arrival of Facebook, um, Twitter, especially 
people had other outlets and of course you know that just continued we, we're already we're going back a decade but it just kept going and going and so there was a feeling that the excitement and the energy and the newness was somewhere else and that was a shame because people were still publishing good things um, on blogs like design observer things that once would have generated discussion but now suddenly they weren't doing it so much so again, coming back to that 2011 moment, um, mm-hmm. uh, it's 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 like we were getting a slowdown on both fronts, uh, print and uh, online digital culture. Uh, the heat wasn't there in the way that it had been. And by that time, of course, a new generation of younger designers had emerged from the design schools and they were out there working and they perhaps didn't have the same expectations or interest in forging this kind of vibrant culture of writing, which is really what I've been interested in um, and have wanted to do all along. And that, that, to come right up to the present, hasn't changed. I would still like to see it. Um, I think I, if, if you if you want want me to pursue it or ask about it, I can point to places where I think it's happening to some extent. Uh, I don't yeah. see myself yeah. as being, um, you know, on the front line of that writing anymore, simply by virtue of having been doing this for so long. You know, we, we've just talked about what is actually a thirty-three year period. <laughs> um, I, I can't claim to be the same. Um, young writer that I was when I started. And I think that at a certain point, uh, the work has to be done by a new generation or new generations. And that that there are signs now, it's taken a while, but that that process is underway. So um, I feel encouraged and optimistic, but I don't feel that this is my cause or my fight in the way that I certainly felt um, 15 or 20 years ago. Can you talk more about that? That This is kind of exactly, you obviously have interviewed a lot of people. You knew exactly where I was taking <laughs> taking this conversation. Because um, I was curious about kind of what you see as the quote unquote design discourse today. And, and you're saying that you're, you're optimistic and that this is a new group of people. Um, where do you see that happening? What is exciting about it now to you that maybe you didn't see in the 2011 conversation? How What's changed since then to now? Well, I think that, that actually there are just more things happening since 2011. <laughs> that, yeah. that, 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 um, uh, I can't say if I, uh, if I was uh, failing to see something that was happening. I, I would often ask people, you know, have you seen seen any any interesting websites? Have you seen any interesting publications? And above all, I would ask over and over again: Are you aware of any interesting writers? Because we've had, and I've said this before, but we we we've often talked about this subject in the abstract. Oh, we're for design criticism, but design criticism can only exist if individuals want to write it. <laughs> so the, the the sign of design criticism's health is always the ability to name writers, to point to interesting things they've written. Mm -hmm. That's the evidence that it's happening. So to come back to today, uh, there are interesting journals. They tend to be infrequent, but they do do exist. And often there will be a single person or a small team who are highly motivated to contribute to the discussion. So I'm thinking of something like... um, 
Counter Signals, published oh, by yeah. Jack Henry Fisher in Chicago. Uh, I've seen two issues of that so far. I guess a third, if it hasn't appeared, is probably in preparation. Um, another example would be Francisco Laranjo's Modes yeah. of Criticism. He's yeah. published three issues of that so far. And it, you know, it's just him. He wants to do it himself. He doesn't have a staff <laughs> yeah. or a team. He's, he's the publisher and he gets it together. He asks people to write things or he republishes material, I guess, on occasions as well. Um, you can find the kind of writing in there that we might have seen in the past in yeah. Emigre, yeah. especially. Uh, there's a great little political um, journal looks at political graphics and culture called Signal, which is published six mm. issues and seems to come out about uh, one, once a year. Again, it's infrequent. Uh, that's uh, published by Alec Dunn and Josh McPhee. It's another American one. Uh, what else do I like? Uh, I think it may have uh, come to a temporary halt, but you can never tell because time <laughs> passes and then another issue of one of these things will appear. There's one called Back Cover, published in oh, France by Edition uh, B42, uh, who also publish books. And they, uh, they, they've they done a fantastic job. They've done about six or seven issues um, of that publication. Often you'll find writing, say, by um, Robin Kinross, the mm -hmm. British writer who they yeah. admire, who's some of whose work they've translated and published over there. They're, they're, they're obviously interested in a... In, in Ross's work with Hyphen Press in London, mm -hmm. so that's a smaller independent publisher, but you know an mm -hmm. important one. Um, someone, uh, someone like Richard Hollis, you know, yeah. very eminent yeah. designer and design historian, who also has been featured in Back Cover. I mean, I, I won't go into too much detail about what what they cover. Then the other thing I want to mention, because I I'm intrigued by it, is a a place where something is absolutely happening, and it's 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 certainly something that I. Uh, watch and read these days and that's um, the AIGA's Eye on Design website yeah, and yeah. when that first appeared you know I, I it wasn't particularly my taste in its visual appearance I didn't really get the candy <laughs> colors and it all seemed a bit too kind of light and pop I, I've completely come around on that I actually think it it's very vivid it feels very contemporary but even more to the point it's published a mass yeah. of what is in effect design journalism, and I've been, you know, I've been bemoaning about the lack of outlets for design journalism, the fact that magazines were closing. Well, here is a website published slightly improbably, I, I feel, by the AIGA, although the AIGA has a great publishing history and it published the journal. At first, I didn't understand why it was publishing something which was so newsy. It mm -hmm. just didn't seem like that was its job. But however that came about under the direction of Perrin Drum, uh, it's turned out to work extremely well. And I, I think it sets a kind of standard and pace for other publications, whether web-based or in print for that matter, um, which want to track what's happening now. And, you know, if you look at what the some of their writers like Madeleine Morley or Emily Gosling have been written, you know, look, go to their part mm -hmm. of the site where it lists all their pieces, they've written dozens and even hundreds of texts. And this is great because when you do that, and you know, I know this myself from my experience <laughs> as a journalist, when you do that, you gain enormous experience. You cover a large field and you really find out what's going on. 
and and the very thing I was talking about earlier happens. You build your own confidence as an observer and potentially a critic. Mm -hmm. So if critics are going to emerge, they're going to emerge from something like Ion Design, which gives younger writers the opportunity to do a lot of writing and to make a lot of personal connections and discoveries. Um, that's what it needs. You you can't really be a critic unless you're tremendously talented. So it could could happen by writing occasionally. You know, if all you manage is three pieces a year, um, you're probably never going to get there. Right. Because it's just not enough writing practice. Um, however, having said that, of course, there's always the chance of the utterly brilliant writer who writes three stupendously insightful <laughs> long-form pieces a year. I'm not saying it couldn't happen. I just think it's a bit unlikely, whereas journalism provides, and that's what we're talking about with Ion Design, provides very right. fertile soil for those kind of writers to uh, just to, to take root and grow. So that, I think, is interesting. Let's just say a few words about their journal, because, of course, they then decided that they would become a print publication too. And there right. have been four issues that I've seen to date and they tend to have themes. So the latest one is called Worth and it's about money. And this is really interesting what's happening there because, of course, um, if you were an old school uh, modernist designer, it would probably give you the heebie-jeebies <laughs> because, because it is. It's free form very experimental um, kind of design, very lively, varied pages, strange typefaces, strange compositions, mm -hmm. um, uh, quite sometimes quite jarring use of color, intriguing, funky, little eccentric illustrations dotted all over the place. Um, a, a sense a sense when you leaf through it of strangeness, which you don't, of course, get when you look at their website where everything is very regular and, and, and conforms to the format. So they use the opportunity in print uh, to kind of let their hair down yeah. and get a bit experimental. Uh, I, I, as I say, I, I, I got, the, got hold of these things. Uh, I've been reading them. Of course, always ultimately the acid test I would say, and certainly for me, is the quality of the writing. So that that's in the end, that's what I'm looking for. Um, are we seeing writing that goes significantly beyond what has been achieved to date? And I'm going to leave that as a question. I'm not going to answer that one. But let's leave that as a question for any readers of Ion Design out there. But, I, but what I would say, it's only been three years or something they've been doing all this, that they're moving fast uh, and they're developing quickly and they have an enormous sense of panache and confidence. Uh, and, and all of this is essential to making an impact with a publication. Mm -hmm. So I 100% salute that. And unlike those other publications I was talking about, of course, it's regular. The website publishes every week and the journal is coming out regularly too. And that is what we need. You know, much as I admire these journals that publish occasionally, um, you can easily lose sight of them when you've got to wait um, 15 months for the next one to appear. To build up a sense of uh, purpose and, and, and to move with a sense of energy, you need to publish regularly. And that's becoming harder to do. 
another reason why you know I'm 100% behind Ion Design because they're you know they're they're keeping the flag flying for design writing, uh, journalism, and potentially criticism too. I want to I want to kind of connect that though to to kind of something that you were talking about earlier about reading from reading criticism and journalism from a bunch of different fields and I think that's something that you've your writing has always done you've always kind of connected a bunch of things together you've always brought in references outside of design and I'm I I would love to hear more about your kind of critical process I guess um when you are writing about something how do you go about doing that how do you think about uh what is my angle on this? Or do you have certain themes that you're kind of always applying to different things? What's that, what's that look like for you? Over time, it's certainly the case that uh, themes did emerge. <laughs> yeah. And once well, you know, there comes a point where you know, you, you know, uh, why you're doing something, mm-hmm. you know, um, well, you know what you've said about it in the past, so you don't want to just keep repeating yourself. You need to add something if you're going to stick with that theme. Um, and I guess because these themes emerge, uh, well, I suppose they, they emerge fairly spontaneously. They do just find them in your writing. Uh, at that point where you spot that you have this recurrent um, concern or interest, even if you hadn't thought about it very consciously, you start to analyse um yourself through your own writing and i've said before because it's always the case that the writing itself is a process of self-discovery you know i i I don't want to sound self-absorbed about it but you can't write for a long time um, on a given subject matter uh, which requires you to think about the subject matter think about what other people have said about it what what Mm -hmm, you're going to say you you can't do this without learning something about yourself in the process so um i never felt in a way that actually oddly in a way that um, perhaps perhaps academic academics people pursuing a purely academic uh, career might feel this need to formulate almost in terms of a statement mm. in, perhaps to get a grant or something, mm-hmm. what I thought I was doing. I, you know, I didn't need to do that. That moment when um, I had the conversation with Rock in 95 uh, was really, uh, for a journalist, unusually self-conscious. Yeah. We were saying, well, we, we've got this magazine, we're publishing things. Why are we publishing what we're publishing and what are we trying to accomplish? And there were colleagues coming out of journalism at the time who thought this was all a bit self-involved, self-conscious or uh, putting yourself in the picture in a way that the journalist is not required or required to do. Um, And I guess I, I did that then and I've stuck with it since because I had to acknowledge over time I was doing this for personal reasons and that they weren't mysterious to me so why not talk about it and uh oddly someone asked me this question very recently and i i just summarized it uh that what i thought i was doing all along was a kind of personal search because it was entirely Mm self-driven um for meaning and value and of course since our area is design it was meaning and value in relation to design and design phenomena but since i connect those to um, everyday life 
politics, yeah. what's happening out in the world, what's happening in adjacent fields. It was a kind of inquiry that had at least half an eye on these other areas of life too, and the ways in which they manifested themselves or revealed themselves through what we were doing within design. I promise the rest of my questions won't just be things that you said in that conversation <laughs> with Michael Rock. But uh, the tension that I always think about when we talk about design criticism, and I definitely feel it as somebody who's involved in that world, and you talk about it in that conversation, and I, I've seen you write about it in a lot of different places, is, and I, I think it touches on that kind of self-involvement that you said people kind of felt when when that was was coming out is this sense between design as some sort of kind of critical object versus design as a commercial thing and in in that conversation i think you call it like the hairdresser logo problem that not all design is almost worthy of criticism or 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 needs to be dissected in that way and I would love for you to talk more about that, especially in regards to that kind of critical position that you were just talking about and the self-involvement, kind of all of these subjects. How, how do we, how should we think about how we talk about design? What are the, the things that deserve these larger discussions? I will answer it, but I also want to start, I think, by okay. bringing this back to the pragmatic issue of where you can publish. Is mm. there somewhere to publish? Because you can only develop as a critical writer if someone is willing to give you a forum in which to do that critical right. writing. Now, you could just have a blog and you could sit there on your own. And, you, you, you know, some people have made an impact through that kind of self-publishing. Um, that's, that's absolutely fine. But there's no way, uh, probably, that that kind of blog is ever going to feel central to the discourse of the field. For mm. that, I think we need visible publications, whether they're printed online or both. Um, so, so the task, the problem you have as a, as a writer is to find um, publications, digital or print, which will publish your stuff. Mm -hmm. And you're really going to have to have established quite a presence and a strong sense of trust on the part of an, the publication and its editors to be given a regular place in which you can pretty much, as a critic, say what you like. That, so that's it. That you, that's really what what one is trying to achieve. And the fact that I was able to do it, you know, for instance, by writing a column for print magazine for 17 years... Um, well, it, did, it didn't come out about overnight. You know, I'd been writing probably for, I lose track of the time, was it 15 years or something before that happened, before right. that opportunity occurred? Um, you know, maybe, maybe you could just get a column just out of the blue just like that. But, it, you know, if I was the editor of that publication, I, I, I'd want to be very convinced a writer could deliver what I needed before I handed them um, that kind of freedom. So this, coming back to everything we've been saying about journalism, publishing journalistic pieces, there is a jump if you're a regular uh, contributor, say, to Ion Design, since we agree you know, that's a place where it's writing is happening now. There is a jump from doing that, from you know, going to um, meet the latest funky designer and writing a nice little 500-word uh, report on that. There's a big jump from that to becoming an essayist where... Um, you know, discourse on 
whatever it may be, over mm-hmm. three or four thousand words, and and actually find someone, an editor, a publication which is willing to publish that, and and you know the, you asked me this question about what's happening now and how um, optimistic do I feel? I still feel it even applies to me, despite having been in the field a long time, that there is a lack of places where such writing is asked for. And it's why it tends to surface in these um, small publications like Modes of Criticism, where Mm Laranjo wants a long essay piece, and there are writers who want to supply it, and they're prepared to settle for a publication that doesn't have very wide distribution for the sake of saying exactly what they want. And they're absolutely right if they're thinking, well, the people I want to reach, the people who really care about this criticism, will notice my essay. They do. Uh, They do. Um, It's not going to have a kind of wider or deeper traction than that, but it's certainly going to reach the kind of people who would want to want to read it. You've also taught criticism and you teach, you know, kind of writing and criticism classes. How do you talk about this with your students, knowing that maybe the places where they can write are getting fewer and fewer? do you kind of talk about with them? How, how do you kind of talk about what design criticism should be today? Actually, one thing I've said from time to time is that uh, that's fine. You know, you go on one of these courses and you want to be a writer. But what we're crying out for is editors, editors and publishers who can supply the platforms where other people can write. So I think ed- editing is a really important contribution. And without editing and the platforms that editors provide, there can be no criticism of the kind that we're talking about. It just it just isn't going to happen. Mm-hmm. Come back to writing. Yeah, it's true. I, I've, I taught writing at the Royal College of Art for five years, and I think I, it was seven years teaching at SVA on the, oh, the right. course when Alice Twem, Twemlow was the director. Uh, and then um, now... At University of Reading, I'm not so much teaching people how to be writers or critical writers, but I am teaching a, as part of a, a module which we call um, design thinking, but that's ideas in design rather than that kind of business mm, school mm, design. Okay. <laughs> but there is a section in that um, last five weeks on criticism where, much as you were saying earlier, uh, we look at key texts from the recent history of critical writing as a way of um, highlighting certain themes of criticism. Mm. So, yeah, I'm, I'm quite focused on it still, I'm still talking about it, trying now to find ways to make it interesting to a much younger um, <laughs> cohort of students. So these are, these are undergraduates, these okay. are people you know, 20 years old. Um, these are not postgraduates in the way that the Royal College of Art or the School of Visual Arts people were. Uh, and and I think occasionally we get someone who probably does fancy becoming a writer eventually. They can see that's an interesting thing to do alongside designing. Uh, but that's they're there to learn how to be designers primarily. Mm. Whereas yeah, to go back to those uh, writing courses, the aim was to produce writers. Uh, at SVA, and this was what was so brilliant about the SVA courses as I, as I knew it then, especially when it was a two-year course, mm-hmm. the people who came on that course 
absolutely wanted to write in the field of design and so the course could be very focused at the royal college of art it was a it was called critical writing in art and design and it attracted people from both sides but in practice far more people um, came in from the art world they might even have studied fine art or history of art uh, there were some people who came in from fashion, architecture as well, and design, especially graphic design, was real minority. So um, any teaching on that course had to be um, aimed more generally uh, at the needs of the critical writer, and it had to accept that if people went on to do critical writing, it was probably going to be about art on that that course. So that you know, that determined. If, on the one hand, I found that quite liberating um, because there was no need to, right. to talk about design very much at all, and you know, given my interest, that didn't didn't bother me in the slightest. But I, I I was slightly regretful that more people weren't emerging from the course who wanted to be design writers so having said that uh, a few did and there's a publication called dirty furniture oh yeah yeah which is a journal of design I, uh, it has a little bit of um, graphic design material but it's more about three-dimensional design products objects and so on and that was started by people who were on the course who are, so you know great that, that's exactly what i'm talking about they mm -hmm. they emerged from the course and they created a platform in which writing could happen exactly what we needed talking about these platforms and as a way to start to kind of wrap up the conversation a little bit i i would love to hear more about your uh <laughs> media consumption habits i guess uh you know you gave a great list of kind of current design publications that you're reading you are well versed in design history it seems like you are consuming a lot how do you do that <laughs> Uh, well, well, it's it, of course it's actually a key. It's a key issue and a key question now because when when social media happened, started mm -hmm. to happen, I, especially having come from the world of print, having had half a lifetime of reading and writing, <laughs> uh, print uh, 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 with with print in mind. Of course, I was hyper aware of how much time that had taken, right. how many hundreds and thousands of hours had gone into that. And here was a new distraction. <laughs> Get with the modern world mm -hmm. and spend half your time, as of course did happen, um, devoting yourself to tweeting away merrily or whatever. And I, I just felt it, this, for me, this would be a mistake. Mm. It's not like I would enjoy it that much necessarily or get very much out of it in terms of my activities as a writer. But what I would do is seriously distract myself from the work I wanted to do. Right. So, and also, you know, I've had a computer. Um, and worked on a computer since 1984. So there's nothing Luddite about this at all. Right. But I just thought I've got to keep things in proportion. And I'm I'm not going to lose sight of my personal priorities and my values. And it may be, you know, that in, in restraining myself, I overdid it. But the fact is, I'm, I'm still hugely excited uh, by the world of print. Um, I'm <laughs> drowning in books and publications here. Um, and and there it is. And to come back to your point about what you know, what am I reading outside of um, design? I subscribe to only a very limited number of 
publications, I get the London Review of Books, you know, which is enough reading in itself, actually, um, exactly equivalent to the New York Review of Books. Um, uh, I get Sight and Sound magazine, the film magazine, which I've been a subscriber to since I was uh, 19 or 20. Mm-hmm. I absolutely love it. And we haven't talked about film, but you know, film is film is my hobby and pastime and has been all these decades. And it's probably the thing I'd want to write about if I wasn't writing about design. Oh, interesting. Uh, what else? Uh, there have been periods where I, I would just receive for free um, magazines like freeze the art magazine oh, yeah. i don't get even follow that very much anymore because i guess i'm i'm more interested in photography than art these days mm-hmm. so i do read the british journal of photography and uh, i don't have a subscription you've reminded me i must get one to aperture magazine <laughs> which I, I really love yeah um so it's i'm i'm kind of hyper selective and this is very different from the past because i when i was young where so this is going back to the 80s through the 90s i was a magazine junkie i spent a fortune on magazines i've got a storage unit with shelves full of magazines i reached the point where i just had to stop that uh, it didn't make sense on any level mm-hmm. to keep consuming magazines yeah, like that yeah. unfortunately uh, i didn't hear the same message when it comes to books so <laughs> that that's that's principally principally where my money goes these days if I'm buying print but you know I can't I won't give it up there's no reason to give it up I'm perplexed that a generation has emerged that seems genuinely unexcited by and unmotivated by the printed object mm. you know if if I ask um, the undergraduate students at, at Reading uh, if any of them look at magazines um, maybe one or two in a class I know confess actually having bought a magazine it's it's you know it has to be said it's yeah it looks like it's over it's over i, I don't know what the new alternatives uh to printed magazines will be because i i don't get the sense that those um uh, reluctant magazine readers are trying to find the equivalent of magazines online they want everything in ever smaller ever more kind of bite-sized and consumable units of information in which the kind of discourse we're talking about simply isn't possible. Yeah, yeah. So longer term, uh, big question mark, I think. My last question is, I actually kind of want to go all the way back to the beginning of the conversation when we were talking about you kind of zeroing in on graphic design. And you made the point that I agree with that though maybe professionally you you've focused on graphic design you've always had these wide interests and you're writing a lot about photography now you just mentioned film i'm curious what you're what else you're interested in now or what are the things that you are thinking about and excited about right now gosh that's a very big <laughs> and general question what i mean I, well i i think i think it's probably not appropriate to go off uh in a big way on this tangent, but you know, I, I have been fascinated by the um, uh, the development of this kind of global box set culture, where it's really a streaming culture now. People mm. are buying the box right, set right. so much, but the, but but what's what is in effect um, at its best long form filmmaking, yeah, and the way in which um, the, the the kind of pleasure, the satisfaction that you get from the best seasons is very similar to reading a really dense um, Mm -hmm. 
well-plotted novel mm -hmm. with many characters exploring complex motivations uh, and, and, and a sense sometimes of a fantastic, fantastic sense of place or milieu. Yeah. The chance to go into the details of what it, or whatever it may be, um, to go into this in a, in a, with a kind of attention to detail that simply isn't possible in a faster moving film, much as I love film. So, you know, in terms of what what it, what's, what of significance has happened in our culture since 2000, uh, I, I think a lot of the action is there. I'm yeah. sorry to say yeah. it, but they're on a television screen. So I, I probably spend way too much time looking at those things these days, <laughs> late at night, but uh, when the working day is Yeah, done. I was going to say, you're making me feel a lot better about myself for the amount of time I spend doing that also. <laughs> yeah, but it's, you know, okay, I, 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 I know people, I have friends who are kind of holding back or they, 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 don't, they, they feel a bit like I, I was saying about social media. They're aware they could consume an awful lot of time. All I can say is given the, you know, an, an obsession which I had already with film and film history and film culture, this seems like the latest stage in its development. And it would be kind of crazy not to be looking at it, enjoying it, thinking about yeah, it. Yeah, I agree with you. I, I think about that a lot. Even just things of, even these kind of definitions or delineations between what is a movie and what is a television show, all of these things are starting to fall away. And I find that very interesting that we're all consuming them in the same place. And we are getting these, this like really long form storytelling that is like a novel. I think it's so interesting. Yeah, so exciting. And also, uh, the other thing is, is this clearly is um, a key element of the new global culture and that we can rely on the fact that everyone everywhere who has a TV set, set is watching this stuff. So, you know, there, there can be a discussion, a dialogue, and you only got to go online when one of these seasons is playing to see this detailed analysis, um, episode by episode, by you know a whole bunch of critics. We we should do we should be so lucky in uh, graphic design to have these kind of outlets to go into this level of detail, critical detail. I, I think that is uh, a great way to wrap this up, and it has that, some of that kind of optimism uh, that I sensed in the 1995 conversation I talked about before. Rick, as you know, your writing has had a profound influence on me and my influence on design criticism and probably why I do this podcast to an extent. And so it is a complete honor to uh, have you on the show. Thank you so much for this, this great conversation. It's very kind of you. It's been very enjoyable. Thank you. This episode was recorded on June 21st, 2019. Our theme music is by Andy Borgasani. We're on Twitter and Instagram at Surface Podcast. You can find us wherever you get your podcasts and at scratchingthesurface.fm. Thanks for listening. <laughs>